0: We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us online this morning, uh, we're glad that you're joining us. Um, you know, if you've been around for a while, you know that one of the things I really enjoy is just like digging into this book, right? is, is really pouring into this book. And um, there's a passage in Revelation, and maybe you've heard this before, it talks about crowns, right? It talks about... the. You know we're going to be giving these crowns, and they're going to have jewels in them, and all this kind of stuff. And I just want you to know, um, I've I've done enough reading, enough studying to know conclusively what those jewels are. Okay, just in case you're curious. Um, If you show up to church on on spring uh, daylight savings time, you get a big crown in your in your in your big jewel in your crown. So you guys here, if you're joining us online, you get like a. Dollar general version of a, <laughs> you still get one, so that's good, right? That's better than not getting one, but you, you know, so. Uh, hey, um, uh, Easter is coming up, Easter's coming up, and uh, some of you noticed, you know, only a few of you um, critiqued me yesterday for my email, um, only about 27 people texted or emailed me and said, an Easter egg hunt in August, why are we doing an Easter egg hunt in August? We're doing it in April, okay? Although August might be the first dry day that we have uh, between now and then. Uh, April, and if you have no clue what I'm talking about, it's because you don't get emails from us. Which means a couple things, The little PSA. It means one, you've never filled out a card, a Connect card, online or in person, right? Um, you did fill out a Connect card, but you were not quite sure if you could trust us, so you first dated us and gave us a fake email, right? and we're still sending stuff to your fake email. Or the third option is the really awkward one is uh, that you unsubscribe for my emails. Um, all of those can be fixed if you fill out a connect card and tell us that you want to get information about what's going on. Lastly, the last uh, thing that I have for you is um, an announcement, but I, I, need a, um, I need an object lesson. Linda, um, Linda, can you come up on stage here? Yeah, if you guys thought Linda, uh, Linda um, what, she was up here leading worship. She leads worship for us all the time. She's a rock star. She's been around here for uh, a lot of years. And you may notice, a little extra heavy getting up those stairs today? You may have noticed Linda was walking with a little bit of a limp today because yesterday Linda got engaged. <laughs> Love you, Linda. <laughs> now you can leave. That was my object lesson. I just want to embarrass you. So uh, we're glad you're here. We love you, Linda. Um, uh, Give her a hug. Give her a high five later. Um, And if you know Caleb, hit him up on Facebook. He's a good guy. So uh, here, let's read. If you have a Bible, we're going to be Hebrews 2. Um, If you don't, you can follow along here on the screen. We'll be here. Hebrews 2. We're going to look at four verses, okay? It says this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word was spoken through angels, proven unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the holy spirit according to his own will okay so here's the, if you've been here with us for the last couple of weeks you know we're working through the book of hebrews and you may know some stuff about the book of hebrews but if you haven't let me get you a little up to date the message of the book of hebrews is this jesus is better right i mean we got it right here jesus is better this is the, the message of Hebrews is Jesus better. And he goes through the book of Hebrews and he argues that Jesus is better than Jesus is better than sacrificial system. Jesus is better than high priest. Jesus is better than promised land. Jesus is better than the law. The beginning place, he argues, what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, is to say that Jesus is better than even the messengers. He gives a better message because he is a superior messenger. And the messenger was. Was the angel? So, if we looked back at this text, you know, you could look and you could see and go, "Oh, right." He, it's obvious what he's saying, that the message of Jesus is more weighty, more significant, more important, and we should listen to it. I was listening to a professor just a couple weeks ago, and he said this. He said, um, "When we read the text in English in 21st century cultural lens, it's like reading, um, it's like watching something in standard definition." okay? Um, I I just have to tell you, I have no clue how anybody watched sports on a 17-inch black and white standard definition TV in the 70s. I have no clue how you even knew what sport you were watching, right? Have you looked at some of those clips, right? It's just a bunch of blobs, right? Now, here's the thing. When you watch something standard definition, you know what it is, Right you can kind of you can kind of figure it out you can see but there's no like you're not sitting at home being like oh no his foot was in his foot was in right cuz you get you can't see you can see that the play happened and he said you know when we read scripture in english in our translations in our culture today it's it's like watching someone stand different we can we can see what's going on. The the text is plain. If you read the book of Hebrews and you never studied a single commentary, you never listened to anybody else, you could see what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. But he said this. He said, um, as you begin to understand the culture and you begin to understand the context, it's like it begins to pop. It begins to pop with some um, vibrance and some life. And it's like watching something and in high definition. Now, he said, you know, his point was he was encouraging people to study original languages and he said, you know, if you you read it in the Greek or if you read things in the Hebrew, then it becomes like watching in 4K, just this vibrance and this intensity, this clarity, right? As we read it today in English, it's easy to see what he's saying. But the thing that we often miss as 21st century Americans reading in English is we miss the vibrancy of all the things that go unsaid. So, so here, here's, here's a quick example. Let's start with this, right? Verse one, it says this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. So we do not drift away. Now, if you, if you look at this um, right here at the beginning, we must pay close, much closer attention this all these english words are actually just two greek words okay one of them just means a lot very intense mucho right like uh, with earnest and umption and gumption right that's one of the words the other word uh, is a nautical term it's a nautical term now it might not be surprising because look at how the translators end the sentence so that we do not drift right you you drift when you're in a boat right now, this nautical term that's up here, to pay close attention, um, we're not actually totally confident exactly what it meant, because I don't know if you know this, but sailors in the first century weren't much for writing in their diaries, okay? We, we, we believe it means one of two things, okay? It, it could mean this. The word here could be this image of when you are captain in a boat in the midst of a storm, we know it's, in the midst, it's a reaction in the midst of a storm, is to point the ship, to safe harbor basically skedaddle, get going as fast as you can, whether it was where you were intending on going or not. You find safe harbor and you shelter your boat in safe harbor. The, the other thing that it could mean would mean to, in the midst of the storm, to drop an anchor or to drop something in the water to slow the movement of the boat. Because here, when you, you maybe don't think about this, when you have an unpowered boat. When you have an unpowered boat and a storm comes through, a lot of times boats just get caught in the storm. And as the storm moves, the storm pushes the boat and the boat actually never leaves the storm. There's some accounts in scripture where it'll talk about that they were in a storm in a boat for seven or eight days. And people are like, there's never been a storm that's seven or eight days. Well, when you're just in the storm and you're literally moving across the Mediterranean Sea with the storm, you can just keep getting pushed. And so they would have a strategy where they would drop things in the water because the water's not moving the same direction to drag themselves so that they could pull themselves out of the storm. There's, there's not a lot of things more terrifying than if you are on a boat that has just lost its power and is floating free, right? Especially when you see shoreline. Um, my family, uh, we go to Shasta, Lake Shasta, every couple years. And um, this really great picture here um, is of a houseboat, Right, and this a couple of years ago, we were on this very house. Now maybe it wasn't this houseboat was in the picture, but it's this exact same model of houseboat. And if you've never seen a houseboat in person, they are big. I mean, it is a single-wide mobile home that's floating on the water. Okay, they're huge, and this one's two stories. You see the room up in the top? It is a lot. They always look like they're sinking. If you ever see, if you ever go to Shasta and you see someone driving, it always looks like it's just about this far away from just nosediving into the water and just submerging itself. And um, we were, if you've never been on a houseboat, when you stay at night, you don't just, someone asked me one time, they're like, well, how do you make sure you don't run into the shore at night? Well, you don't just float in the lake. You you tie yourself up. You you take a houseboat, if you've ever seen this, right? And you nose it right in the shoreline. Now, if you've never gone and you're gonna go sometime, I'm gonna give you a little little hint, little freebie for the rookie so you don't make a rookie mistake. Here's the deal. If you go houseboating, make sure to untie the houseboat and back up Every day or every other day, because the water level drops. Rookies do this all the time. We'll be driving around, and all of a sudden, there'll be a houseboat that's four feet up on the shoreline because they never untied all week, and the water level dropped. Right. So we're in this harbor. not in this harbor. We're in this cove. It's windy day, real windy. So we're not out on the boat. You know, we're we're actually out back playing baseball in the water, which is a whole different thing that we do. But but we're in the back of the boat. Everyone's in the water, and the boat is tied to the shoreline. Okay. All of a sudden. You know, we're using the boat for our foul lines. So it's really important where the boat sits. All of a sudden, someone noticed that the foul lines started to drift. And all of a sudden, someone yells, The boat's untied! And this massive boat begins to float free and begins to turn to get blown into the shoreline where there are people and there is a ski boat. If you have never seen terror or haven't seen terror recently on the faces of grown adults... I immediately became an Olympic swimmer. I've never swum, swam so fast in my life, right? Swam to the back of the to get on the boat to try and get the boat fired up. And then there's nothing, sometimes the boats take a while to get fired up. There is, there is no amount of panic that, that you can imagine when you're sitting there and you're going you're like, come on, come on, right? And it's like, oh, it wants you to choke. And then you're like, come on, you gotta let it warm up. I don't care, fire up, right? And I'm just Bruh, trying to get this thing all fired up, right? It is terrifying. It is terrifying to be out in the ocean, to be out in open water in a boat that's lost its power and is being pushed by the seas. This is an image Scripture uses all the time of us in this world. We can go through this life where we can be tossed and thrown by the waves and the winds of this world. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us it is essential. Like, the truth is, if, you, if you've not been told this in a church before, the truth is that life is hard. Life is painful and life is difficult. And following Jesus doesn't suddenly make the blue skies bust open. And the waters to immediately calm and everything in your life. In fact, there are plenty of times when following Jesus just makes the the waters more stormy. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, if we are going to make it through this life following Jesus, we need to tether ourselves to him. We need to fix ourselves. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, it it says this. um, Hebrews 12, right? This is our thesis verse. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is part of verse 2. It says, let us keep our eyes fixed on jesus fixed on jesus this is what the writer of hebrews is telling us all throughout the book to keep our eyes fixed on jesus now um the next three verses we're going to look at right that are going to tell us how and why it matters to keep our eyes fixed on jesus Uh, We have to understand some things about what's going on. So the the first is this. We've been talking through the book of Hebrews. You know this, right? Um, The writer of Hebrews is a Jew. You can say it. That's okay. The writer of Hebrews is a Jew. And he's writing to a bunch of Jews. Now, what it meant to be a Jew in the first century meant that there were words and phrases that had depth to them. That had meaning to them. That had significance to them. That when you would hear a word or a phrase, you would think of something, right? And the writer of Hebrews is masterful. In fact, there's a lot of commentators, a lot of church historians that um, believe that what we have in the book of Hebrews is probably a sermon that's been preached for years and years and years. And the person who's preaching the sermon had become so good at it, so excellent, that every single word was chosen perfectly. And in these three verses... He's going to do something with his Jewish audience that is masterful, right? He's going to use words and ideas in a way that make them feel something, that make them see something. Words that maybe we don't see. Well, let me give you an example. This is, happens all the time. In every culture, there are words and phrases and there are things that make us feel things, right? So like if I said the phrase, if I said, you know, right now, 9-11, Right? There are, there are images that pop into your head. There are probably emotions you feel, right? There are thoughts. Now, if you're like me, your mind's probably right now wandering to a bunch of other things that you think about, about 9-11 and emotions you experience around 9-11. But if we were sitting here 23 years ago, Right. If it was 2020 and I said 9/11, you know what I'd be saying? I'd, I'd be saying this. This would be my sermon illustration. I'd say uh, it's it's a beautiful, true anecdote. Did you know that when they first came out with 911, it wasn't called 911? Did you know that? You can look it up. When it first came out with 911, the way they advertised it was 9/11. They first advertised it at 9-11, and if it was 2,000, the only context you might have for that phrase is that it was the beginning way that they, that when they started rolling out this emergency response line. Here's the problem, here's the problem. Um, people couldn't find the 11 on the phone. In panic, right, you ever done something dumb in panic, right? Your brain just, like, starts shutting down. And, you know, they, they, 9, and then they look at the phone and go, There's no 11! Call 11! There's no 11! There's no 11! How do I call? And if you don't know, um, phones used to do this. And it, uh, right? Right? Because if this was 23 years ago, what it meant to say the word 9-11 would be a fun anecdote about how our brains shut down when we panic. But today, when we say 9-11... Images come to mind. Emotions come to mind. And the same thing happens in every culture in every community. And in the first century Jewish community, there are phrases that he says in this passage that are going to make them see and feel things that as 21st century Americans, we just don't. So it says this. Look look, look at um, verse 2. He says, uh, For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable. Okay, so here's... What's he talking about? Here he's talking about... The Old Testament law. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about how um, by the first century, there ju- developed a belief amongst Jewish communities that any time God spoke in the Old Testament, that any time God spoke with someone in the Old Testament, it was an, actually an angel that was speaking as an agent on behalf of God. It doesn't lessen what was said. It doesn't lessen the authority. They came with the authority of God. But it developed this idea that every single time, that God spoke, and you can, you can not like it, you can disagree that it, it's not in the Bible. It's just, we have to understand the way they saw things, right? And so, when, when they see this, the word spoken through the angels, the word, it, it's really easy. Um, it's, it's the law. In fact, the Ten Commandments in Jewish, in Jewish culture, the Ten Commandments are all called the Ten Commandments. You know what they're called? The Ten Words. The Ten Words, Right? And so when he says this, they're going to think about a specific thing. They're going to think about uh, generations before that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses came down and gave them the law. They're going to think about what it meant to be out in the wilderness. They're going to think about the grace and mercy and kindness of God, that he would teach them. In fact, Torah, um, we translate it law. It means more the idea of, of teach, that he would teach them what it meant to be his people, that amongst all the people in the world that he would be gracious enough to tell them this is how we walk together, this is how we we live life. They're going to think about their ancestors before that stood at the foot of the mountain and God was so gracious to come and speak this law to them. The next verse, it says this, right? So they're going to be thinking about past generations at the foot of Mount Sinai and then it says this, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, there's a a name, there's a phrase that God uses all the time about the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. He says this, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What it meant to be a Jew was to be the people who escaped, who were drawn out, who were rescued, who were saved. What it meant to be a Jewish person was to be one who had been saved. We call it, in English and the way we work with it, we say, who experienced the exodus. But as soon as he uses this phrase, this is what God says about him all the time. This is what Old Testament prophets say about him all the time that they are the people that God rescued, that God saved out of the land of Egypt, that he brought salvation and saved them from the land of Egypt. So as soon as he uses this phrase, they're going to know how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. They're going to immediately think and begin to feel all the feels that come along with being the people who God saved, who God exodus out of out of Egypt. And they're going to begin to think about all the, the paths that God drew, the, 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 the plagues and, and the, the, the Red Sea and the wilderness, and they're going to begin to think and feel about the grandeur and the amazing grace and mercy of God who would save them from bondage and from slavery, who would conquer the, the greatest army the world had ever seen, the greatest king the world had ever seen, who believed himself to be a demigod, That God overthrew him and drew this this, this tribe of people that no one cared about out into the wilderness. That he saved them. That this is what it meant to be a Jew. As miraculous and amazing and incredible as it was, they'd feel all that pride and glory and and, and thankfulness that God saved them. But then there's the last one. Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 4. It says this. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders. He, pause right there, right, the, that right there. He, here's a perfect example. In English, we know what that means, right? God demonstrates signs and wonders. You can go, yeah, God did great things. Whether it was in the Exodus, signs and wonders. Ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, manna, um, water out of a rock. God did, God did great things. He did incredible things. Signs and wonders. We can think of Jesus' life, right? Because this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Signs and wonders. He turned water into wine. He healed a woman with the issue of bleeding. He, he healed the lame. He, he touched the lepers and he healed the lepers. He raised Lazarus from the dead. That is a huge sign, right? And a huge wonder. Here's the thing. Um, in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and the writer here is writing in Greek, this phrase only occurs five times in all of the Septuagint. In all the Old Testament, this phrase only occurs five times, and it refers to one historic moment. Every single time this word is used outside the book of Hebrews, it is referring to a single historical moment. Let me read it to you. Exodus 7, the first time it shows up, it says this. I, being God, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. For a Jewish reader, the image that the writer was trying to paint was not unclear. What he wanted them to see, he's trying to tell them that Jesus is better than all these things. And so what he uses is he uses all this kind of language that will make their mind think of the power and the might and the amazingness of a God who would rescue, who would see a people who were enslaved that nobody else cared about, that were exploited and taken advantage of, that he would see them, he would hear them, that he would rescue them, that he would escape them out, that he would save them through Crazy things, right? The Nile turning red. Can, can we all just be honest? Okay? Crazy. Locusts everywhere. Crazy. The things God did was amazing and crazy, absurd, hard to imagine for our minds. Parts the Red Sea, draws them out, takes them out in the wilderness. Hundreds of thousands of people wandering around the desert with no food. And like things you. And I maybe wouldn't have thought of. You know, one of the things it says, it says that they walked around for 40 years and their sandals never wore out. That God took care of even the leather on their feet and he fed them hundreds of thousands of people for 40 years. And what the writer wants us to see is that all the awe and all the amazement we might have out of the saving act of a God who would call a people out of Egypt, that what he's doing in Jesus is even greater than that. You know, I think a lot of times we have become so comfortable and familiar with the story of the cross and the story of Jesus, and like we become so comfortable with Jesus that we lose the awe of the cosmic, magnificent craziness of what God does in the cross and the resurrection. What God does in his son. We we look at the stories in the Old Testament, right? look of the stories in the Old Testament, we go, we go, oh, those are amazing, right? And sometimes, it, it's okay. We can be honest, right? Sometimes you maybe read a story in the Old Testament or you hear someone tell a story in the Old Testament, you're like, oh I don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm a I am do not know that I think that happened. Right? And maybe that's you, and that's okay, right? We're all in different places on a journey, right? That's okay. But sometimes you read these stories and they just seem too amazing that God, without a single warrior, could conquer the largest, most powerful army the world had ever known. That seems astounding. And yet, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us that what God wants to do in you, what God wants to do in us, what God wants to do in the world through us is astoundingly absurdly cosmically more miraculous and amazing than even the exodus so it made me wonder if like god's great mission is freeing broken and enslaved people bringing life and resurrection and restoration what for us are these miraculous pharaohs in egypts that god wants to free us from like, what, what, is, what is the thing that, that God wants to do in you that is so amazing and so crazy that it pales in comparison to God delivering people out of Egypt? Well I don't know, but I, I came up with a few, right? Maybe one of these is one of yours, thing that God wants to do in you, and maybe he's been doing a work in you. Maybe he's already done a bunch of things in you. But maybe there's still more He wants to do that He wants to demonstrate, proclaim to all of creation, all of human history. All eternity of his power and his might because he wants to free you from these pharaohs and from these Egypts. Well, the first one I thought of is is this is maybe for you it's fear. Second Timothy tells us, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And I thought, how absurd would it be? Can you even fathom? Can you imagine the shock an unbelieving world would see if the millions of Christians in America alone lived a life without fear? Can, can you imagine that, like how everything about our politics and everything about our families and everything about our social media, everything about our workplace wasn't consumed with fear of what someone was doing? That every single time something didn't pop, popped up in the news, we didn't respond with panic but we're freed from the fear that so easily consumes us. We walk with confidence into an unknown future because we know that God is miraculous and able and he's already there. What a shock how world-shaking it would be for us to be people who walked without fear. For you, can you imagine the response of people in your family, right? They know you. They can see right through you. If God did a work in your heart in a way that freed you from the fear that you feel like comforts you and gave you confidence to walk in power and love and with a sound mind and to trust him no matter what the world around you looks like, no matter what the storms are going, that you drop anchor and you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith. Maybe it's, maybe it's something very similar. These two often go together. Maybe it's anger. There's a story right in the beginning Genesis, Genesis 4, a story of Cain and Abel, and and God's speaking to Cain, and and here's what he says to him, right? He's intending to be gracious and compassionate to Cain. He says this if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. See the image there? God's painting this picture of like a, like a lion waiting right outside the door. And, and in the Hebrew, um, it can mean just it, it desires to consume you. And anger can do that. And maybe there's some really legitimate things you have the right to be angry at. People have treated you in ways, situations have happened in life, and you feel very justified. But the truth is that the anger is consuming you. And the anger's created bitterness. The anger created unforgiveness, and the miraculous, amazing, cosmic, shaking thing God wants to do in you is he wants to free you from the anger. You know, it's been said, I'm sure you've heard it, that um, living with unforgiveness, living with bitterness is is like drinking poison and hoping to kill the other person. It's consuming you. And the world-shaking truth of the good news of the gospel is that God wants to free you from that. Maybe it's apathy. We're going to get to it in Hebrews 3. But you remember what happens to the the people in the wilderness who see the ten plagues, who see God part the Red Sea, the people who walked on dry ground between the sea. And we look at the story and we go, How could their lives ever be the same? You know where those people ended up? They died in the wilderness. Because in distance and in time, their hearts grew cold. And the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. That their hearts become hardened. And maybe for you, you can think back 10, 15, 20, 40 years ago. There was a moment, there was a season in your life, and it was like, it was like the 10 plagues. It was like the part of the Red Sea. It was like man in the wilderness. It was amazing. It was a mountaintop experience. It was awesome. But the days have been long since then. Your heart's grown cold. And what God wants to do in you again is a miraculous thing, more amazing than even the exodus in bringing life to your tired and weary soul. And maybe that's the other thing. Maybe maybe the Pharaoh consuming you is just exhaustion. Maybe you spent years of your life investing and pouring into people, and, and you need to hear the words that Paul writes in Galatians, so let us not become tired of doing good. For if we do not give up, the time will come when we will reap a harvest. Maybe you've spent years or decades pouring into a spouse or a child or a family member or a parent or a community and you've just become tired. You just don't see anything changing. In fact, often the fruit you see looks worse than than what it was before. But the hope and the good news and the miraculous, shocking, absurd history changing truth is that what god wants to do in you and he wants to do in me is something so magnificent that when we stand in eternity heaven will look to what he's done in the church what he's done in us and it will pay it it will the the exodus will pale in comparison maybe the last one is this idolatry Maybe the thing that God wants to free you from is the same thing he wanted to free the Jewish people from, is idolatry. Jesus says these words. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and fill in the blank. You can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and reputation. You can't serve God and the accolades of other people. You can't serve two masters. You know, there's a quote that I love. I used to hang it in my office. It says, um, still he seeks the fellowship of his people. That through pain and suffering, he might remove their hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself. Maybe the great and miraculous and painful work that God wants to do in you is to remove your hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself because he is the only one who brings life and hope and freedom and goodness. And maybe, maybe one day, Maybe one day we'll all join in creation in the heavens and we're going to get to celebrate God's majesty and his amazingness and his goodness. And there's going to be like a video slideshow going for all eternity, just showing God's glorious things that he did. And it's going to show creation and it's going to show his might and it's going to show all the different animals he made. It's going to show Adam and Eve and it's going to show the mercy he showed to Adam and Eve right, when, when they rebelled, and it's gonna show Noah, and it's gonna show the Exodus, and it's gonna show David, and it's gonna show David and Goliath, and it's gonna show all these amazing moments, and the pinnacle of it, the climax of the whole story of what God is gonna do, is gonna be consumed in the cross and the resurrection. More majestic, more powerful, more amazing than anything God's done in all of human history was what he did in the cross, and what he wants to do in you and me. What would it be like? What would it be like if we, as a people, could be freed of the things of this world and attach ourselves to him? That we'd be freed from the bondage and the slavery of the things that we think give us comfort and really consume us like a tiger at the door? What would it look like for a church To be so transformed by the goodness and the grace of mercy. To stand in awe. So here's my hope. I don't have words to contend for it. Here's my hope. Here's my prayer. Here's been my prayer all week. I hope and pray that in some miraculous, unexplainable, shocking way that God might do what he does over and over again. That he might remind you. That he might stir in you. That he might soften your heart in a way that you're reminded again of the gloriousness of a God who loves you so much, whose grace and mercy is sufficient in all things, and that we might stand in awe of his goodness and his glory.